Hello and welcome to episode 45 of Pay-Per-View, where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place events and headlines in the true context in a weekly podcast. Pay-Per-View, now on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Player FM, and the host website, Podomatic. And the first subject this week is migration. This is in the Express. Britain will sign United Nations proposal to make immigration human right. International Development Minister Alistair Burt said the UK is supportive of the UN's Global Compact for Safe, Orderly and Regular Migration document, which is the subject of a major UK meeting next week. MEP Marcel de Graff announced today it is declaring migration as a human right, so it will in effect become impossible to criticise Mrs Merkel's welcome migrants' politics without being at risk of being jailed for hate speech. But it's been pointed out that accepting the principles could technically see EU citizens in court for criticising migration between EU member states. Mr. Burt said the UK government is supportive of the UN's Global Compact for Safe, Orderly and Regular Migration, both as a step forward in international cooperation to tackle irregular migration and as a framework to help us deliver our commitments under the Sustainable Development Goals. Well, I've talked about the Sustainable Development Goals. This is Agenda 2030 out of the United Nations, a spin-off of Agenda 21, which I've talked about many times. I've talked about the 17 Sustainable Development Goals in episode 36. The article goes on. Mr. Burt says, As a leading voice in the negotiations, the UK government secured positive outcomes in the final text, which clearly support the Prime Minister's main objectives, as set out in her speech to the United Nations General Assembly. Mr. Burt goes on to say, This includes a clear differentiation between refugees and migrants, the recognition of a state's right to control their borders, and proposals to help states build capacity in this area and an explicit acknowledgement of states' responsibility to accept the return of their nationals who no longer have the right to remain elsewhere. The document, to be signed in Morocco, seeks to make immigration a universal human right and has been met with fury by Italy, a nation that took in the second highest number of asylum seekers behind Germany last year. Italy is boycotting the meeting. Well, I personally think that all European countries should boycott the meeting. Anyway, the article goes on. Anyway, the article goes on. Italian Deputy Prime Minister Matteo Salvini said, just like the Swiss who carried forward the global compact up until yesterday and then said everyone stop, the Italian government will not sign anything and will not go to Marrakesh. The floor of Parliament must debate it. The Italian government will allow Parliament to decide. Italian Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte warned the migration document tackles issues citizens are divided on. Mr Conte said the global migration compact is a document that raises issues and questions that many citizens have strong feelings about. The article goes on. Austria, Australia, Bulgaria, Croatia, the Czech Republic, Hungary, Italy, Israel, Poland, Slovakia and Switzerland have also stated they will not sign the agreement. Slovakia's Prime Minister Peter Pellegrini has said his government would never accept the pact because of its take on migration as a generally positive phenomenon, which contradicts Slovakia's will to distinguish among the migrants. Asylum to Italy rose by 4% from 121,185 to 126,550 in 2017. In 2015, Angela Merkel pushed for an open-door migration policy across the EU. Critics said the move was motivated by Germany's need to boost its workforce by at least 1 million. Bollocks. It's motivated because Angela Merkel knows that's the agenda. And there's another article here about this compact. This is also in the Express. PC gone mad. Criticising migration could become criminal offence under a new plan. Well, see, people say about political correctness that it's gone mad. There's two things to say to that. Political correctness has not gone mad. Political correctness is mad. 
And secondly, while it's mad, there's a method in the madness, as I've talked about many times before. I talk about political correctness, especially in episodes 13 and 15. The article says, The United Nations Global Compact for Safe, Orderly and Regular Migration seeks to make immigration a universal human right. MEP Marcel de Graaf said, I would like to say some words on the Global Compact on Migration. On the 10th and 11th of December, there will be an international congress in Marrakesh, Morocco. Participating countries are set to sign this agreement, and although this joint agreement is not binding, it is still meant to be the legal framework on which the participating countries commit themselves to build new legislation. One basic element of this new agreement is the extension of the definition of hate speech. The agreement wants to criminalise migration speech, Criticism of migration will become a criminal offence. Media outlets that give room to criticism of migration can be shut down. Why? Because we live in a free country. I know we do, because they said we do. It is declaring migration as a human right so it will in effect become impossible to criticise Mrs Merkel's welcome migrants' politics without being at risk of being jailed for hate speech. The article goes on. In 2015, Angela Merkel pushed for an open-door migration policy across the EU. Critics said the move was motivated by Germany's need to boost its workforce by at least 1 million. I've just explained why that's bollocks. The document is an intergovernmentally negotiated agreement prepared under the auspices of the United Nations. In other words, it's a global agreement that covers all dimensions of international migration in a holistic and comprehensive manner. Austria, Australia, Bulgaria, Croatia, the Czech Republic, Hungary, Italy, Israel, Poland, Slovakia and Switzerland have already stated they will not sign the agreement. One of the guiding principles of the document asks for a whole-of-society approach to promoting mass migration, including the role of the media. Governments are asked to promote independent, objective and quality reporting and stopping allocation of public funding or material support to media outlets that systematically promote intolerance, xenophobia, racism and other forms of discrimination towards migrants. In other words, media platforms that are making points about migration that government and those ultimately behind migration don't want people to make. Italian Deputy Prime Minister Matteo Salvini said on Wednesday that Italy will not sign the United Nations Global Compact for Safe, Orderly and Regular Migration next month. Italian Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte warned the migration document tackles issues citizens are divided on. He said, we consider it right to put the debate in Parliament and subject any final decision on the outcome of that debate as Switzerland has done. So the government will not participate in Marrakesh, reserving the option to adopt the document or not only when Parliament has expressed its opinion. Slovakian Foreign Minister Miroslav Lacek has decided to resign in protest at Parliament's decision on Thursday to reject a UN pact on the treatment of migrants, his ministry said. Mr Lacek was president of the United Nations General Assembly when the migration pact was adopted and had earlier threatened to quit if his country did not support it. The Global Compact was approved in July by all 193 member UN nations except the United States, which backed out last year and is due to be ratified formally in December. The ministry said Foreign Minister Miroslav Lecak has decided following today's vote in Parliament to resign. Besides Bratislava, other European Union members like Austria, Hungary or the Czech Republic shunned the pact while Switzerland delayed its decision. The pact was conceived after the biggest influx of migrants into Europe since World War II, many fleeing conflicts and poverty in the Middle East, Africa and beyond. Yes, some were, but a lot of them are single men and a lot of them are opportunists jumping on the bandwagon. And it's sobering to think that Britain, with the Brexit negotiations, if you can call them that, what passed for Brexit negotiations so far, has as one of the main points of negotiation free movement. 
And it's sobering to think that this United Nations document, when it's signed, and as the first article says, Britain will sign it, would apply with what it means for migration, regardless of Brexit. So all this here and there with the negotiations, the Brexit negotiations, is almost irrelevant in the face of this document, in the face of this global compact, because it's saying that migration is a human right, and if you criticise it, you can go to jail. Because society is agenda-driven, not people-driven, and migration is an elite agenda. And on that point, here's a story from The Telegraph from October 2009. Labour wanted mass immigration to make UK more multicultural, says former advisor. The huge increase in migrants over the last decade were partly due to a politically motivated attempt by ministers to radically change the country and rub the right's nose in diversity, the right of politics. According to Andrew Nether, a former advisor to Tony Blair, Jack Straw and David Blunkett, he said Labour's relaxation of controls was a deliberate plan to open up the UK to mass migration, but the ministers were nervous and reluctant to discuss such a move publicly for fear it would alienate its core working class vote. You see, they're honest. As a result, the public argument for immigration concentrated instead on the economic benefits and need for more migrants. Critics said the revelation showed a conspiracy within government to impose mass immigration for cynical political reasons. Mr Nether was a speechwriter who worked in Downing Street for Tony Blair and in the Home Office for Jack Straw and David Blunkett in the early 2000s. Writing in Evening Standard, he revealed the major shift in immigration policy came after the publication of a policy paper from the Performance and Innovation Unit, a Downing Street think tank based in the Cabinet Office in 2001. He wrote a major speech for Barbara Roch, the then Immigration Minister, in 2000, which was largely based on drafts of the report. He said the final published version of the report promoted the labour market case for immigration, but unpublished versions contained additional reasons, he said. He wrote, earlier drafts I saw also included a driving political purpose that mass immigration was the way that government was going to make the UK truly multicultural. I remember coming away from some discussions with a clear sense that the policy was intended, even if this was not its main purpose, to rub the right's nose in diversity and render their arguments out of date. The article goes on. The deliberate policy from late 2000 until at least February last year, 2008 that would be, when the new points-based system was introduced was to open up the UK to mass migration, he said. Some 2.3 million migrants have been added to the population since then, at the time of this article being published, according to Whitehall estimates quietly slipped out last month. On question time on Thursday, Mr Straw was repeatedly quizzed about whether Labour's immigration policies had left the door open for the BMP. In his column, Mr Nether said that as well as bringing in hundreds of thousands more migrants to plug labour market gaps, there was also a driving political purpose behind immigration policy. He defended the policy saying mass immigration has enriched Britain and made London a more attractive and cosmopolitan place, but he acknowledged that nervous ministers made no mention of the policy at the time for fear of alienating Labour voters. Part by accident, part by design, the government had created its longed-for immigration boom, but ministers would not talk about it. In part, they probably realised the conservatism of their core voters. While ministers might have been passionately in favour of a more diverse society, it was not necessarily a debate they wanted to have in working men's clubs in Sheffield or Sunderland, he says. Sir Andrew Green, chairman of the Migration Watch think tank, said now at least the truth is out and it's dynamite. Many have long suspected that mass immigration under Labour was not just a cogger but also a conspiracy. They were right. This government has admitted 3 million immigrants for cynical political reasons concealed by dodgy economic camouflage. 
He says, the article goes on, The chairman of the cross-party group for balanced migration, MPs Frank Field and Nicholas Soams, said, We welcome this statement by an ex-advisor which the whole country knows to be true. It is the first beam of truth that has officially been shone on the immigration issue in Britain. A Home Office spokesman said, Our new flexible points-based system gives us greater control on those coming to work or study from outside Europe, ensuring that only those that Britain need can come. Britain's borders are stronger than ever before, and we are rolling out ID cards to foreign nationals. We have introduced civil penalties for those employing illegal workers, and from the end of next year, our electronic border system will monitor 95% of journeys in and out of the UK. The British people can be confident that immigration is under control. Well, this article was published in 2009, and it's more out of control now than it's ever been. The ID cards that were mentioned in that quote from the Home Office spokesman, I talked about in the last episode. There was an article I featured in the last episode about ID cards being proposed for migrants. This thing about multiculturalism is not about diversity and equality, ultimately. People who believe in multiculturalism will think it's about that and will call for multiculturalism on that basis but ultimately it's about what migration is about on one level which is constantly eroding national identity and this is not only in the short term this is planned kids today not just in britain but in other european countries like germany and sweden my goodness me look at the effect of migration in sweden are growing up in an increasingly multicultural society and when you're a kid you tend to accept how things are as the way they've always been when you grow up with something, it feels familiar. You don't really question it, you just think, oh, this is how it is. And the idea is to create this sense of familiarity, to erode national identity, to generate less resistance to a foreign governing body, in the end, a world governing body, a world government dictating to the unions, like the European Union, dictating to the regionalized countries of Europe, and the United Nations is massively part of this. As I've said before, the agenda is for countries to be turned into regions of megacities, mega-regions, not least because it makes them easier to control. That's one of the reasons, anyway. This is what multiculturalism is about. Among the general population, this situation with this global compact for any country that signs up to it will obviously massively only intensify the division already present among migrants and native people in the countries who sign the compact. This is exactly what the authorities want because they want a race war. They want riots or protests or fighting because it gives them the excuse to bring in the society they've been planning for so long, which is the total surveillance state and the brutal psychopathic police force. I've talked before about Agenda 21 and its three-tier society structure. With the elite at the top, everyone else at the bottom, and I mean everyone else at the bottom. At the moment, we have a working class, middle and upper class structure. The elite want class structure gone entirely they don't want different classes they want one class which is the slave class everybody else except them everybody else in the world everybody else in the world in poverty or near poverty dependent on whatever job they're assigned to do based on whatever mega city mega region they live in each region will specialize in a different area and in between the elite and everybody else in the world will be a vicious, tyrannical police military force in each country. In the end, robotic military law enforcement system working on behalf of the state. Rioting and protesting will only give authority the excuse to introduce more of that structure in terms of law enforcement than we already have. Rioting and protesting are not going to change anything. 
peaceful protesting, as long as it's sustained and in areas which are significant, might play a part in bringing some change. But overall, protesting is really not the way to change anything. One of the other benefits of migration from the political perspective is the political persuasion of migrants. Migrants are far more likely to vote for parties favouring migration and migrants in general. And thus you've got migrants voting on that basis for parties, irrespective of their general policies, which could be detrimental to the lives and livelihoods of the native people of the country. Another benefit from migration is ramping up fear of terrorism. And there will be violent, psychopathic migrants, of course there will, but then there's violent, psychopathic people in any race or group of people. But the point is, if you can manufacture increased fear of terrorism due to massive increases in migration, you can justify taking freedoms away to protect people from terrorism that you say might happen without providing any evidence to back up your claim. But when you get people in fear, they don't question, they don't research, they just panic and look outside of themselves for someone or something to protect them, which is where you come in and offer your alleged protection, which is just taking freedoms away for the sake of it. So there's various benefits to the elite and their agenda and the elite's gophers like politicians and political leaders of migration. And this is why despite Brexit potentially concluding with a deal meaning an end to free movement, that's not guaranteed of course by any means. Neither Brexit nor an end to free movement into Britain, but it's possible. Whether it's likely is a different story. But regardless of Brexit, we have this compact now out of the United Nations where migration will be classified as a human right and criticism of it will be a prima facie case for jail in any country which signs the United Nations global document which Britain says it will sign. Why? Why would this happen in a country which has voted to leave the European Union with one of the main reasons for doing so being migration and wanting an enter free movement be signing up to a global document out of the United Nations, which will classify migration as a human right and jail those who criticise it publicly and potentially shut down media organisations who give too much of a platform to people criticising migration. Why would that happen? Because, as I keep saying, society is agenda-driven, not people-driven. And migration is an elite agenda. And the next subject this week is museums. This is in The Telegraph. Museums and galleries should charge an entrance fee and subsidise discounts from millennials. The National Museums and Galleries should charge an entrance fee and subsidise discounts for millennials because high ticket prices are excluding young people. The controversial suggestion came from Sir Roy Strong, director of the Victoria and Albert Museum between 1974 and 1987, even though he objected to his then-trustees forcing him to introduce voluntary charges, which were later swept away. He now believes that national collections have little choice because they are so strapped for cash. He said, I would much rather see a low entry fee for everyone with concessions for students and people like that. The article goes on. Admission charges is a highly emotive subject, but Sir Roy sees little choice for museums and galleries that are desperate for money, having tried every possible fundraising avenue. He was responding to the findings of research commissioned by Ecclesiastical Institute, whose clients include the heritage sector. A survey of 2,000 people aged between 18 and 30 reveals that more than a third never visit galleries and almost half never go to stately homes. 
Almost half would go if there were cheaper tickets. While entry to museums and galleries is generally free, the big exhibitions are often not. Students, job seekers and those on income support have to pay £15 to see the Oceania exhibition at the Royal Academy of Arts. Student concessions offered by Stonehenge, Windsor Castle and the Tower of London are £15, £18, £90, £30 and £17.70 respectively. Brian Allen, an MPG trustee, said that museums and heritage organisations realised that high prices have become a deterrent for young people. What's happened is that as the state and local authorities are withdrawing from the funding of museums, the onus on the exhibitions programme to produce income has become greater. This has meant that in some cases museums are constantly playing safe with shows and they're also hiking up the prices. He warned... But they're going to pay a price for this in the longer term because people are beginning to be a little bit jaded of the over-rich diet of so-called blockbusters. There's a generation coming through who are thinking twice about spending that kind of money. £15 is a lot. He added, somewhere like the MPG, over two-thirds of the income is now raised privately. The state is only going to withdraw further. The paradox is that the government are obsessed with the idea of getting both a younger demographic and a more diverse one. Julian Spalding, former director of galleries and museums in Sheffield, Manchester and Glasgow, said The Ecclesiastical Institute research is shocking, but it isn't surprising. I've been worried for a while by the escalating prices of museum exhibitions and heritage sites. They won't survive on grey heads alone. He added, I know budgets are very tight, but I don't actually think they'll lose anything by offering a two-for-one discount for millennials. They'll certainly increase their audience and these will bring more visitors. Word of mouth is always the best advertising. Too many young people now are missing out. The article goes on. While the Wigmore Hall offers under 35-year-olds £5 tickets for selected concerts and the Royal Court Theatre has some 10 standing places for anyone. The National Portrait Gallery introduced £5 tickets for visitors aged 25 and under for its Michael Jackson exhibition this year. The survey, which Ecclesiastical Insurance commissioned from one poll, also found that those who were not taken to specific cultural occasions as children are far less prone to visit them as adults. Faye Walden, whose latest novel, After the Peace, is the story of a child of the new millennium, said, If I were a millennial and not a crumbly, that's a new term, I'd be outraged and say the privileges that you crumblies get and without even a means test, a generous pension just for being alive, free prescriptions, free bus travel, a third off the train, discounted heritage sites, and for us, we're young and inexperienced, on beginner's wages, zero wages, or no wage at all. There's nothing. Zero wages, of course, means zero hours wages, I assume. The quote goes on. Get a job, you crumblies cry. You try. There are no jobs for us, the learners, the inexperienced. You jeer at us for being uncultivated. And suppose you let us into a cathedral, a heritage site, a gallery, and not drive us away with impossible charges if we even try. Well, I would welcome the idea of subsidising entrance fees for students and young people because what we're seeing now with the progressives and the PC mob is constantly trying to rewrite history. They're always calling for statues to be taken down or university courses involving historical figures who did or said things they disagree with to be changed or removed from the curriculum. And it's like George Orwell said, he who controls the past controls the future, he who controls the present controls the past. In other words, if you control someone's perception of history, you control their perception of where they are and what should happen in the future as a result. That's why understanding history is so important, because if you understand the history, you understand where you are, have a much better understanding of where you are. We're seeing, of course, with the constant focus on technology, especially with young people and the move towards electronic books, which I talk about in episode 39, a situation emerging where, further to what I've just said, you've got Orwell's memory hole, where anything can be revised or removed from history. Or, as we would say today, 
deleted. Social media sites, the internet giants, play a part in this with their constant censorship, as I said earlier. These are the modern day book burners. These are the modern day memory hole. Also, with the constant focus on technology, we've got kids and young people less willing than ever to learn about history or their cultural heritage. And so museums are a great way to preserve historical fact in a physical way. Of course, there's a lot of historical revision within education as well and within official history. And there needs to be to give people a perception of history, to give them a perception of the present that suits the elite and their agenda and suits the establishment. But there's a lot of factual preservation in museums. And that's more important than ever in the age of technology and attempted historical revision. We live increasingly in a post-fact society where facts don't matter as much as emotion or reaction. And just on that point, just as a quick aside, you see a focus on reaction on YouTube, with videos often showing a reaction or a photo of someone reacting to something totally different to what the video is about. Some videos are even called reaction videos. The reason this is done is to generate more clicks because the more popular you get on YouTube, the closer you are to qualifying for monetization, where the more clicks you get, the more money you get. And so that's generated sensationalism and overhyped video titles and images to go along with the video thumbnail, the image of the video that you click on to watch the video, images of reactions or alleged reactions when the reaction could be from a moment totally different from the actual video. But I have to say, I see this as connected to the PC mob and the social justice warrior situation. Not that the people making the videos will know that, but everything's about reaction now. And the more you can get people to perceive reaction rather than thought, then the more you're going to generate the sense of offence, the offence culture that we're seeing now where everything's about reaction without thought. And this is what's given rise, at least in part, to the post-fact society. And historical and cultural revision is all part of creating the post-fact society. Hollywood movies, and other movies as well, give people a certain perception of history. And unless you know your history, you're not going to know whether or not the movie version of history that you're seeing is historically accurate or not. So in this way, Hollywood movies are a very effective way of giving people a certain perception of history and therefore a certain perception of the present and future. As I said earlier, when you grow up in a certain environment or with a certain perception, you tend not to question it. And you just perceive it as how things are or how things were. And it's never questioned or challenged. Also, there's another aspect to understanding history, and that's understanding each other. This is what the PC mob don't understand. They see everyone as a group, and I've talked about the PC mob group mentality and the PC pyramid that results from that in episodes 13 and 15. Yes, everyone falls into a certain racial or cultural group, of course, but everyone is unique and has a unique story based on their history. And if we're going to come together irrespective of race, culture, religion, and all the other division categories between us, understanding each other's histories is central to understanding that everyone is unique within each racial, cultural, or religious group. And we might find we have much more in common than we thought if we do actually take the time to understand each other's histories and talk to each other. Because as I said earlier, the agenda needs divide and rule to succeed. So coming together is the answer. And the next subject this week is satellites. This is in the Telegraph. What is Galileo and why is Britain set to build a rival satellite system? Britain intends to build its own satellite navigation system after being frozen out of the EU's Galileo project by Brussels because of Brexit. Everything's because of Brexit, isn't it? 
After months of fruitless negotiation over the space programme and after sinking £1.2 billion into the project, Theresa May said the UK would aim to build its own system instead. The issue was cited by Sam Yaima, the Universities and Science Minister, as the deciding factor in his resignation on Friday. Mr Guillaume, who has been tipped as a future Conservative leader, says the Galileo decision should act as a clarion call claiming Britain's interests will be repeatedly and permanently hammered by the EU27 for many years to come. What is Galileo? Galileo is Europe's global navigation satellite system, a rival to the US GPS system that will be used for defence and critical national infrastructure purposes. It will not only support mobile phones and sat-navs, but also provide vital location information for the military and businesses. The project began in 1999 with the EU aiming to create a network of 30 satellites orbiting the Earth that would ensure its members were not so reliant on the US, Russian and Chinese systems. The armed forces are particularly keen to access Galileo because the US currently keeps back the best GPS services for its own military. The first operational satellites were launched in 2011 and the program is expected to be finished in 2020. That's a very significant year, as I'll explain. Among the most crucial parts of the system is the public regulated service, an encrypted navigation service used by government agencies, the armed forces and emergency services. Only EU member states will be allowed access to it and it is due to be completed in 2020. Much of the PRS was developed by UK scientists and engineers. The problem is the EU is insisting that key part of it, the PRS, can only be accessed by EU members and so UK contractors were told they will be locked out of work on the highly sensitive project after the country leaves the block in March. Well, if we leave, that's not guaranteed. We still don't know on what basis we'll be leaving if we leave. Anyway, the article goes on. Mr Guillaume said in June that Brussels was putting European security at risk by insisting that the UK could only be allowed third country status within the programme, which would severely limit scope for cooperation. Britain has said it wants the EU to repay the more than £1 billion it contributed to the project. It is unclear whether the UK will get back the money. Sources said negotiations continue on whether any of the UK's financial contribution to Galileo will be returned. Isn't it interesting how, when there's an agenda project, money is always available? Mr Guillaume said, Our preference is to contribute fully to Galileo as part of a deep security partnership with the EU. By forcing through this vote while excluding UK companies from the contracts on unfounded security grounds, the European Commission has put this at risk. Without full, fair and open industrial involvement, Galileo does not offer the UK value for money or meet our defence needs, so he will be obliged to walk away. The article goes on. UK companies have built components for Galileo and one of the project's two security monitoring centres was based in Swanwick in Hampshire. The site is now being relocated to Spain. On Friday, Mrs May announced Britain was giving up trying to gain access to the system for defence and critical national infrastructure purposes. I have been clear from the outset that the UK will remain firmly committed to Europe's collective security after Brexit, she said. But given the Commission's decision to bar the UK from being fully involved in developing all aspects of Galileo, it is only right that we find alternatives. I cannot let our armed services depend on a system we cannot be sure of. That would not be in our national interest. And as a global player with world-class engineers and steadfast allies around the world, we are not short of options. Well, this is the armed services that invade countries like Iraq and Libya and Syria on a manufactured reason to go and protect the civilians of that country from violence by bombing areas full of civilians. Instead, Mrs May confirmed the UK will build its own global navigation satellite system, a project that independent experts estimate will cost between three to five billion pounds. 
the UK is expected to work with the US and other Five Eyes partners. And Mrs. May said any new system must be compatible with GPS so the two systems can cover for each other if one is subject to attack. The Five Eyes, there's another section here. What is it? An intelligence alliance between Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the United States and the UK. What is it for? Originally, it was a Cold War arrangement designed to monitor the communications of the Soviet Union and its allies using the Echelon system. It has grown to monitor billions of communications across the globe and now plays a leading role in counter-terror surveillance. Now, that's closer to the truth of what it's about, for reasons I'll explain. Why these five? The five members were all Cold War allies, but they also share the English language, the use of common law, and four of the five have the Queen as head of state. Of course Britain and America's in there, because they always are. Anything to do with a war, Britain and America's at the front of the queue. Is it controversial? Absolutely. Many critics worry that the system has placed itself beyond proper supervision. Some have suggested that it allows member nations to circumvent domestic laws by receiving information on their own citizens from other members of the alliance. Do you know, what I find interesting over the course of the time I've done pay-per-view and from reading newspaper articles before that is the number of times in an article where it will say critics worry or critics fear or experts fear and then what follows that is usually, not necessarily in every case, but is usually much closer to the truth of what actually it's happening for, whatever the subject is they're focusing on. And it's the same in this case. Many critics worry that the system has placed itself beyond proper supervision. Some have suggested that it allows member nations to circumvent domestic laws by receiving information on their own citizens from other members of the alliance. Yeah, that's the idea. But of course, the journalists will take the official explanation for everything as why it's really happening and then mention, because they have to, for balance, what critics say or experts fear about whatever it is they're talking about as, well, this is what they say. But they'll think that it's paranoia or it's just, oh, this could go wrong or this could be a consequence of whatever it is they're focusing on writing about. When actually what the critics fear and experts fear in many cases is actually what's really happening. But they won't see it like that because they're journalists, they're mainstream journalists. They don't see anything in any way other than the official explanation. The idea that anything other than what we're officially told could be true never takes place in their mind. The article goes on. The plan had been suggested before. In August, Mrs May ordered officials to start work on a British satellite navigation system. Philip Hammond, the Chancellor, signed off funding amounting to as much as £100 million to map out plans for a post-Brexit UK satellite system. There's people in desperate financial straits. There's people who are facing struggles physically and still being told they're fit to work when they're clearly not there's people having their benefits cut there's people sleeping on the streets but we can't do anything about that that's too much of a problem to sort out but we can spend a hundred million pounds or propose to on a uk satellite system why because as i keep saying Society is agenda-driven, not people-driven. If it's an agenda project, it gets unlimited funding. How many times do you hear a political leader say, we can't go to war because we can't afford it? When does that ever happen? War is a massive vehicle to change society, and that's the main reason why it happens. And that's the reason why war has unlimited funding. Helping people just for the sake of helping them with no agenda, goal, 
being realised as a result, well, we can't do that because we don't have enough money. Society is agenda-driven, not people-driven. The article goes on. The UK Space Agency is currently leading work backed by the Ministry of Defence on a planned British system to provide both open and encrypted signals with the same range of commercial and security applications as GPS and Galileo. More than 50 UK companies have expressed interest in the project and a series of contracts are being tendered. British overseas territories and crime dependencies around the globe will be used to provide the necessary ground-based infrastructure to deliver worldwide coverage. Mrs May said, what is in our national interest is to say, no, you haven't allowed us full access so we will develop an alternative. We will look at alternative options. We are doing that work, but we will work with other international partners to do so as well. The article goes on. Decisions have yet to be taken on whether it will represent good value for money for the UK to make use of the commercial side of the Galileo project. And that's followed by this statement. Recent studies suggest more than 11% of UK gross domestic product is directly supported by satellite navigation systems, and a report warned any failure of the service could cost the economy a billion pounds a day. Is it good value for money? Let me just work that out. With people sleeping on the streets, this is being proposed, by the way, as I said, just... Bear that in mind. In September, Jean-Claude Juncker, or Drunker, more accurately, President of the European Commission, poured cold water. Well, it's usually something other than water that he's pouring, but anyway. Poured cold water on Britain's plans to create a system that would rival Galileo. A strong united Europe would allow its member states to reach for the stars. Thanks to our Galileo program, Europe is still in the space race, he says. No single member state would have been able to launch the satellite that 400 million users around the world are benefiting from. Without Europe, there would be no Galileo. We respect, of course, the British decision to leave our union. Ah, that's why you're making it nice and easy for them to leave, isn't it? We regret it deeply, but we also ask the British government to understand that someone who leaves the Union cannot be in the same privileged position as the Member States. Privilege, not the word I'd use for reasons I've explained before. I talk about Brexit in episode 2 and 3. I talk about it in other episodes as well, but 2 and 3 would say it's probably the best explanation of what it's about. Now, do we need satellites? Yes, of course we do. We need them for satellite navigation and important communications. But the point is, there's a bigger picture here. Satellites are happening for two main reasons. One is to be part of the ever-increasing surveillance system that's being built all around us, which I talk about in last week's episode. If you want total surveillance, there's no better way to do that than surveilling from outside of the planet. The other main reason it's happening, the main reason is to create a wireless technological bubble, a wireless technological sub-reality, which operates within a certain frequency band and blocks information on any other frequency. So all people are aware of is the information within the bubble. And this is the cloud of transhumanism, as Google executive Ray Kurzweil talks about, a global name in the transhuman agenda. I talk about that agenda considerably in episode 11. Kurzweil is talking about the vast majority, at least, of human minds being connected to the cloud by 2030, which is a year which keeps coming up, along with 2020. I said earlier, when I was reading the article, that 2020 is a significant year, because 2020 
is, among other things, when Britain at least wants 5G up and running as a common Wi-Fi communications frequency, despite its massive implications for health, which I talk about in episodes 8 and 12. The plan is to bathe the planet in Wi-Fi. This is why people like Elon Musk, a tech billionaire and investor, is ploughing so much money into satellites himself, which are designed to aim Wi-Fi at the planet. Because the satellites and 5G and Wi-Fi all part of this technological sub-reality bubble. And Elon Musk is ploughing so much money into satellites himself because he's not investing to get a return. He's investing because it's an agenda project. And the agenda, the elite's global agenda, trumps money every time. Every time. And the last subject this week is spying using AI and robots. This is in the Telegraph. MI6 chief calls for a new era of spying using AI and robots to combat rogue states. The head of MI6 will on Monday highlight the urgent need for a new era of spying in which artificial intelligence and robotics are deployed to combat rogue states hell-bent on perpetual confrontation with the UK. In a rare public speech, only a second in four years in the job, Alex Younger, the chief of MI6, will say that Britain must enter an age of fourth-generation espionage to keep the country safe. The MI6 boss, known as C, will also emphasise the importance of strengthening Britain's security ties with European allies ahead of Brexit, pointing out that multiple Islamic State-inspired attacks on the continent have been disrupted thanks to the cooperation of intelligence agencies. That's what they say. I've not seen any evidence of that. Just a claim. The speech to students at St Andrews University, where Mr Younger studied, will also warn of the danger of diversaries, who are willing to take advantage of huge leaps in cyber technology to launch attacks on Britain in ways that fall short of traditional warfare. Mr Younger will single out Russia for its malign behaviour. More demonisation of Russia. The Kremlin had ordered the assassination of Sergei Skripal, a former colonel in Russian military intelligence, who spied for MI6 using nerve agents smeared on his front door handle in Salisbury. Where there's so many holes in that story that to claim that it's what we're told just shows how much of a repetition operation the mainstream media is of the official narrative of events. The article goes on. The public comments will... I talk about the Skripal story in episodes 7, 9, 11... And 33. The article goes on. The public comments will reinforce concerns at the highest level that the rules-based international order is being flouted by the likes of Vladimir Putin, Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. This is the Saudi Arabian regime that acts in exactly the same way as Islamic State does. And this is the very same Saudi Arabian regime that the West supports and sells arms to knowing that they can end up in the hands of Islamic State, the arms and weaponry. I talk about that in episode 7. And President Donald Trump, well, of course, Britain and America always stand together. Mr. Younger will say, The era of the fourth industrial revolution calls for a fourth generation espionage, fusing our traditional human skills with accelerated innovation, new partnerships and a mindset that mobilizes diversity and empowers the young. The fourth industrial revolution that follows the digital revolution of the internet age is expected to see huge breakthroughs in the widespread use of artificial intelligence, robotics, nanotechnology and quantum computing. I'll come to that later, after I finish reading the article. The article goes on. Mr. Younger will say the combined... The article goes on. 
Mr. Younger will say the combined response to the Salisbury attack in March had exposed the perpetrators and led to dismantling of Russian spy networks in a host of countries through the expulsion of diplomats. Mr. Younger will say the combined response to the Salisbury attack in March had exposed the perpetrators and led to the dismantling of Russian spy networks in a host of countries through the expulsion of diplomats. Mr. Younger will urge Russia or any other state intent on subverting our way of life not to underestimate our determination and our capabilities or those of our allies. MI6 will also need to recruit a new generation of younger spies from diverse backgrounds going forward, apparently. Aimed at students, Mr. Younger will say, I want to speak to young people who have never seen themselves in MI6. It doesn't matter where you're from, if you want to make a difference and you think you might have what it takes, then the chances are that you have what it takes, and we hope you will step forward. Or in other words, young people who are clueless about what MI6 is really about, young people who think it's about serving your country when it's actually about serving the elite and their agenda. This is what all intelligence agencies are about, MI6, MI5, CIA, FBI. Ultimately, they are working to serve the elite in their agenda. doesn't mean everybody in the organisation knows that. Of course not, but that's ultimately what they're there for. This call for a new era of spying using AI and robotics is nothing to do with rogue states. It's all part of building this surveillance grid network, which involves the satellite systems of the previous article. It's all designed to be one network. All the surveillance I talked about in the last episode is all one network in the making. It may be presented as separate and unconnected, but it's all part of the same surveillance grid. If you tell people it is, though, if you tell people that it's about stopping terrorism and spying on rogue states, then they'll accept it. Fear leads to control, as I said earlier or can anyway. We should also remember that they want us to know about all the surveillance and tracking. People think they don't want us to know. They do, because when people know they're being surveilled, they change their behaviour. Or well, some people do anyway. Depends on who you're talking about, of course. Along with this, we have the constant attacks on freedom of speech and the censorship happening in various ways, not least through social media, which I talk about in episode 27. We're looking at in 1984, in fact beyond 1984 world that I've talked about many times before coming into place. These huge breakthroughs in the widespread use of artificial intelligence, robotics, nanotechnology and quantum computing that are talked about in the article are not to counter or combat rogue states or for better surveillance against enemies or terrorists. It's to create this surveillance grid and to create the transhuman agenda world which I talk about as I say in episode 11. We're looking at a world being created before our eyes of non-human robotics and AI and an AI-run society and world and a society of total surveillance and censorship with the control and enforcement structure I mentioned earlier and freedom no more. This is the world we are going to live in if we don't face it now and address it now. In individual cases, people standing up, it will make no difference but in numbers it will make a huge difference. It's just a choice, and we don't have too long to make it. So, that's it for this week. That's the news, that's the context and connections, that's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.